Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world, brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Lucy Edge, Chief Operating Officer at the Catapult. And in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the most inspiring minds in the country, exploring the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and also sustaining our planet for the future. This is the second episode of our three-week series from the Westcott Space Cluster Expo in July this year. The Westcott Space Cluster is a growing nucleus of space-related companies developing new technologies in rocket propulsion, 5G communications and in-orbit manufacturing, to name a few. The site offers unique testing facilities in a secure and controlled environment where sector experts can help businesses to identify and benefit from the opportunities in these emerging fields. In this second episode, we're sharing the Small Business Growth Panel, Companies with both new and established presences within the Westcott Space Cluster discuss how the unique testing facilities on site are invaluable to their growth. They also talk about why more international companies are putting down roots in the UK and they explore the next steps in a move towards more sustainable solutions for space. Thank you everyone for uh, joining us today for the expo. Uh, it's really great to see such a full room, given the situation we're in and, and we're coming out of it. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce our panel here to discuss small business growth, but we're going to be touching on a lot of other topics around industry growth as well, just to keep it interesting and kind of bring some more points to the fore. Uh, firstly, I'd like to introduce James McFarlane from Airborne Engineering, Manny Shah from Orbit Fab, Emily Dingle from Ura Thrusters, and Charlie Young from Plastron. And as Martin said, I'm Avantika. Uh, I'm involved with Type 1 Ventures. Uh, We're a US headquartered VC fund, recently launched our UK-based office to access opportunities being developed in the UK and the rest of Europe, uh, primarily because we see that there is great technology being developed here, and we want to bring more capital into this market and support it. So in the first instance, I'd love to go around the, uh, the panel and first ask you to introduce the company you work for, what you do, kind of what's exciting about the business you're with. Um, Charlie, would you like to start? Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm co-founder of a business called Plastron. If you know what a Plastron is, you'll get the story. A Plastron is the protective plate that a turtle wears. So what's that got to do with space? Um, the plate protects the insides from getting damaged from the outside. So we started in the space industry two years ago developing infrastructure for launch. Um, we're basically space flight safety experts. We do skills development, we do infrastructure, and we do service design in the supply chain, um, really bringing safety and quality from the old grey-haired domain of space to the new space with agility and innovation. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm from Ura Thrusters. Uh, Ura is the Basque word for water. And what we're doing at Ura Thrusters is we're looking to use water as the fuel for spacecraft as a propulsion system. So we've recently moved to Westcott around six months ago now, and we're on the tour route this afternoon, so you can see how we're going to be testing all of that. And we're really looking to make space sustainable and propulsion systems sustainable, uh, both for human and our planet's safety. 
Hi everyone, Manny Shah, I'm Managing Director for OrbitFab UK and Europe. So what is OrbitFab? Uh, OrbitFab is developing the in-space propellant and material supply chain. Uh, our focus is on refueling spacecraft and, and satellites. Where um, we've had two successful missions so far, one on the International Space Station and uh, a fuel depot that was launched last year. We're, we're only four years old, so uh, pretty good pace of execution, I would say. Thank you. Hello. My name is James McFarlane. I'm Managing Director and Founder of uh, Airborne Engineering Limited, which is a itty-bitty fledging aerospace company that uh, seven guys in a, a 1950s shed over there uh, on J-Site. And we do vertical takeoff, vertical landing rockets. We do static testing for our various different customers, ground support equipment and data acquisition and things. So um, we basically do R&D as a service for other people. And we also do uh, our own research and development um, through the European Space Agency uh, on, on VTVL rockets and uh, liquid oxygen, liquid methane test facilities, that kind of thing. So helping people make the next steps into, um, into, into the, the way space technology is progressing, really. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. Um, just want to get through some specifics about each of the companies before we open it up. Uh, Emily, Sam mentioned previously on the panel about hydrazine and about hydrogen and oxygen-based systems. Where does water fit into the propulsion spectrum, let's say? Water is a very new part of the propulsion spectrum, uh, but water is made of hydrogen and oxygen. So what we're looking at doing is taking that water, splitting it into its component parts, and then using that to act as the thrust for spacecraft as you then utilize that through one of the thrusters that we're developing. We're starting small at 1 and 10 newtons and then aim to go bigger so it can do small to medium sized spacecraft. Using water has all sorts of advantages because there's an awful lot of cost involved in fueling a spacecraft at the moment, both in terms of uh, cost to our planet, but also a cost in terms of the safety that is required to use hydrazine for the people involved and the areas involved in those fueling areas. Using water, it's not quite the water that's in the bottles. It's more like the ironing water you get in Sainsbury's, but not scented. Um, and you can take that and you use that water uh, in a safe way. It reduces the cost by 30 to 40% because of those, because of those uh, safety mechanisms that don't need to be there and the safety systems that don't need to be there. And it means it can be reused all the time and just keep using it in the lifetime of the spacecraft. Brilliant. And I think um, I'd seen that URA is only about three or four years old. Where are you in that process of developing the technology you need? And what's the next major milestone for the company? Yeah, so Ura spun out of ABS in December 2019. So we're a fairly new company. Uh, we started then with three people and we're now close to 30. So we're growing at a great rate. We're at the point now where we are about to start testing down at our site of these thrusters to start testing the lifetime, uh, lifetime testing of these thrusters. We'll be firing them continuously for several months. And that's one of the beauties of being here at Westcott is we can do that kind of propulsion testing here. Once we've done that, we're looking at a, a flight mission in 18 months or so, we hope, so that we can actually get space qualified and then look at actually integrating these thrusters onto spacecraft. So we're at that R&D going into testing stage, which for me is the really exciting stage of actually making things happen and become a reality. And we're looking to be the first in Europe to launch a water-based thruster. Brilliant. And as you said, it is very much making it from theory to reality, Absolutely. right? And being able to do that here at Westcott is amazing. Yeah. Um, moving to Manny then, as a US company ourselves coming to the UK, what's, what's the reason for the interest in the UK from a US-based startup? In investing, we always hear U.S. is the major goal. Not that we believe it, but why, have, why has OrbitFab decided to grow into the U.K.? What, what do we have to offer? 
Well, this is actually my second company from the US that has been established in the UK. Previously, I was at Bryce, helped establish their European presence. But um, the clear kind of direction of travel that the UK is taking and the statement of intent with the recently launched national space strategy and, and, the, and the joined up approach that's been taken there has provided uh, really strong um, signals for us in terms of where the investment is going, what kind of support the UK is looking to provide. And uh, we're thrilled to be in the UK and looking to grow our, our capabilities uh, for the UK and European market. So um, having that support is crucial. And uh, we believe the UK truly understands what uh, companies' needs are in terms of uh, growing their capabilities, but also um, being that um, support in terms of funding and investment that we're seeing. Um, the fact that the UK is also really interested in IOSM. So the UK ADR mission is a, is a, big, a good example of that. UK was the biggest um, uh, contributor to the ESA space safety program as well. So all of these kinds of uh, emphasis and focus on space sustainability um, really uh, attracted us to, to the UK. And uh, in terms of the context for what we come bring in terms of space sustainability, we're uh, looking to change the paradigm of how we currently operate in uh, in space, where it's a very much a throwaway model, where like if you were to drive your car and uh, you run out of petrol and you ditch it on the side of the road, that's very much how we currently operate in space. So uh, we're trying to change that, and we see very interesting um, opportunities, not just around mission extension, but also um, mobility, how, how you can uh, expand your uh, opportunity set. So things like Velio, um, I think uh, was mentioned earlier, where you can reduce your altitude and you need fuel to maintain that, right? So um, that's where we come in and uh, we believe um, in building that uh, in space bustling economy and we want to do that. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, Manny. In that same transition vein, I guess, I wanted to touch on James, and you, you mentioned there about going from ground-based research to air-based and now having a lot of projects of your own with ESA. I know there's a very exciting project. I'd love for you to talk about that and kind of how you've seen the transition from the industry for the services you provide. That's a, that's a good question. So <clears throat> Airborne Engineering actually originally started doing uh, high-altitude balloon projects, uh, some of the uh, um, sort of manned high-altitude balloon uh, attempts to go around the world, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, we got into rocket testing via that, via very strange routes. Uh, but um, for the last, since we've been at Westcott, so we've been here for about 13 years now, um, we've renovated some of the old test bunkers on J-Site and uh, brought them up to um, what we hope is sort of close to, close to sort of world-class facility for uh, allowing our customers to test things. And so we've been concentrating on static testing uh, of rockets um, for, for that period of time. Uh, but uh, as a background thing, we've been developing our uh, vertical takeoff, vertical landing rocket, which is called Gyrock. Um, and we've been doing some tether testing recently, which has been funded by the European Space Agency, which we're um, very grateful for. And um, that's, uh, we're, we're hoping that will progress into a follow-on vehicle that will be big enough to carry payloads to test things that you might want to use on planetary missions. So, for example, if you want to land on Mars, you need um, like a LiDAR scanner or, or a radar system so that you can do terrain-based navigation, so you can look at the, uh, you can look at the ground, because, you know, we don't have, we don't have um, you know, maps of Mars that allow you in advance to know exactly where your spacecraft's going to land. You know, it's got to be able to have some autonomy. And so that equipment, that, that the, the measuring instruments and the software 
software that makes those decisions need to be tested on Earth before you send it into space. And um, same similar thing for lunar missions. And so um, there are companies in America which provide platforms for that, that kind of thing, um, like, like Maston and, and uh, the uh, NASA Morpheus vehicle. Um, and we, there's nothing really like that in Europe. And we're hoping to, to provide a, a test bed, a flying test bed, so to, to be able to offer more of a service, not just ground-based, but also uh, flying test facilities. Uh, we can't necessarily fly things here at Westcott, but we can, we can build them here. We can fly them elsewhere uh, in the UK and in Europe. So. Interesting. And I think on the last panel, we talked about, well, uh, Mike did a poll of the room as to who thinks we're going to get to Mars in our lifetime. And as you're saying, you need to test those devices here. Are you seeing a lot of appetite for that in Europe in terms of doing that testing and building those devices? Uh, it's it's variable. Uh, so the, the problem with planetary missions is they do take a long time. So if you if you do that as a profession, you might do you know two or three in your lifetime in your in your, your career. Uh, so these missions do take a long time to to, to spin up. Uh, so it's difficult to see where things might might come from. Um, but uh, we were approached a few years ago by a company who who make lidar systems, um, and they just want to test it out. So regardless of whether they have an immediate requirement, they still want to do some risk reduction and actually get some flight heritage for their technology. So. So um, it's, it's always very difficult with, this, with the space industry, um, especially the, the bits that, that we work on, on on this panel, is that we're trying to navigate our way through um, yeah, a complicated and, and, and sort of rapidly evolving and changing scenario. So, so yeah, I can't say now, uh, yes, we're going to be testing parts for this particular mission, um, but you know, we, we just have to keep going and then hope that the opportunities will will kind of meet up and uh, that are, we, we know for example that there's also interest in, in ESA at, uh, for this and, and just looking at guidance uh, and terrain navigation algorithms. Lots of people want to do research on that. So it's not necessarily just about immediate planning, planetary missions, but it's also about doing um, academic research, um, the PhD projects and more blue sky research into what, what is possible that drives the next set of missions uh, in space. Sure. So it's it's a build it and they will come approach because if you don't build it, no one thinks to use anything like it. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's always that catch twenty two thing, you know, which is which comes first. And so um, you have to do a bit of both. Uh, you have to you have to build something. I mean, hardware talks. You know, if, if you can if you can build something and fly it, then then people come to you and say that's interesting. Mm. Can we do this? But can we make that bit a bit different? Um, uh, but also equally, we can't just build something without any understanding of what a customer might want. Um, so so yeah, it's, it's, it's both both. Brilliant. And Charlie, coming to you then, with, we hear a lot right now about the skill shortage, the supply chain issues going on. What is Plastron seeing with the work you do in, in safety testing and skills training as well? And how are you envisioning that shift is going to happen where we do get back to a fully capable uh, skills base? It's quite a big question, that one. Um, and I, think I give you the hard <laughs> topics. <laughs> and I think Kathy Bowden might be in the audience and will Correct me if I say anything wrong here. Um, so in skills, I can talk about where we've been focused on skills because you can look across the career spectrum and saying early entry skills, mid-career skills, and so on and so forth. And there's going to be issues in all of them because we've got, fundamentally, we've got an industry in transformation and the space industry is going through the biggest, probably the only real transformation it's ever had in its lifetime. Um, where we're seeing, you know, innovation is driving change. We're seeing startups coming in. We're seeing a lot of university spin-out starting. You're seeing techs, um, technology transfer coming in. All of those have skill requirements that need to be met. And we, we're, with the uh, with the space agency and the skills group, there's a lot of work being done to work out what that strategy looks like. From our perspective, where we've been focused at the moment. Um, 
working with European AstroTech on site, we've been looking at the fundamental gap between what happens to undergraduates when they graduate with a very good degree, but with very little practical experience. And the bottom line there is, you could have a first class honours degree, but you've never held a spanner. And if you go on a spacecraft with that kind of mindset, good chance you're gonna break something, and that's a very expensive way to do work. So we've been doing work around that. We've just, in the past uh, two months, We've done spaceflight training and we've done on-site training with about 200 undergraduates. And this is kind of the first level, first time this kind of skills development has been happening in the UK. So we, we're starting to see there's a, there's a gap to fill. If we can start that journey and drive skills around safety, I think the emphasis from my perspective is not just because we're a safety business. I think fundamentally the space industry built on a very good heritage of safety and we need to build the exemplars around that and maintain them and drive them through for the new generation because there's a lot of startups who are coming in who don't necessarily have the heritage of working in the space industry and that creates risk. So I think mitigating risk is one part, understanding that you don't have to have a science or a STEM degree to work in the space industry is something that's understood but therefore what are the translation skills required to bring someone who say got a creative background into the space industry, what are the opportunities for them? This has happened in other industries. We saw this in the creative industries about 15, 20 years ago, where we started to see, see a lot of skills transfer. So it's not an unknown approach. I think it's just devising how it's going to happen. And I think that work is, is happening at the moment with the space agency. Brilliant. And I think one of the major things, as you touched on, is that what I've heard is you don't know you could work in space as a student or as a graduate till someone tells you actually your skills are transferable and you are able to transfer into a more space-based economy, space-based um, business. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I suppose careers, we, I talk for myself, but I, I, looking around us, there's at least two others who probably come from a similar age band, as it were, where... <laughs> <laughs> Presumptuous. Okay, okay, maybe one then. Um, <laughs> I'll talk for myself. Then it would be great here, here, aren't I? Um, when I left university, you left with a degree. You went from school, you went to university, you got a job, maybe you took a gap year to go traveling, and then you had a career. And a lot of people had a career. I know people at Airbus who are still there that I started as a graduate with in 1990, and they've stayed in British Aerospace, Matt Marconi. EADS and, and so on and so forth. Um, the generations coming through now, whatever they're numbered at, generation are we A plus, I don't know. But basically there's, there's, there's graduate, graduating generations coming through now who see the world completely differently and they will live the world differently. They will be retiring at 80. Let's have a fact there. They will be living to 120 and that's not a joke or just made up sci-fi. This is where the future's leading us because we're generally healthier. That means careers are changing. So people are not making career decisions before they're 25, 30 and they will have a very much a contract-based career where they'll go in one direction, they'll do something, they'll meander, they'll go somewhere else. So to me, and this is how my career developed as well, I, w I was driven more by the motivation of what interested me. So I started out in space, I was a propulsion engineer with British Aerospace, I then worked for the European Space Agency, I soon went from propulsion to heavy hydraulics and was on the Ariane launch table and was then an operations manager. I then decided I was bored with space, bizarrely, um, and went into graphic design. I then worked for the FT, I then got bored of that, I worked in service design and spent time in the NHS, then got into computer uh, digital uh, services, spent 20 years out of the space industry, came back 
and bizarrely not much had changed apart from miniaturization but the fundamentals were still there so I was able to learn a huge amount by going on a meandering journey and bring that back to bear in the space industry and whilst that's my unique journey I think for a lot of people going forward they can develop competencies in a whole range of different skills and um, career areas and industries and they will be relevant to what space is doing because space is fundamentally becoming multidisciplinary more than it ever has been and i think that's the richness the more that people bring from different and diverse areas the the more successful and more resilient the industry will be in the future yeah absolutely so then opening it up and maybe touching on a subject that is interesting because even the panel we looked before and the panelists we have right now, the companies are infrastructure, hardware, upstream technology based. But from an investment perspective, the viewpoint I've seen is that the UK's focus so far has been heavily downstream, database businesses focused. It's not been on the same infrastructure, not as much investment, let's say, has gone into the same infrastructure, upstream technologies. With the switch now to having sovereign-based launch, the innovation clusters, are you seeing that shift where there is more of a focus, more investment going into upstream, or are we still limited on how much we can accelerate upstream? I think I think it's a this difficult one. Um, obviously, the downstream is where the money is, right? So that's the obvious place to 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 uh, invest. But the upstream technology has to exist to enable that. So you know, we've we've got all of us here are, are, are playing our part to 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 actually allow that to happen. So traditionally, from from the from the Cold War, you know, back back to sort of you know, our era of coming out of university, you know, we're coming into a, uh, where where propulsion space is very much in the kind of Cold War era, and things have definitely changed uh, for the better since then and um, you know it's gone from being this weird sort of thing where only governments can put money into it to now where we've got um, you know we've got various companies uh, here a growing number of companies here where which are doing the upstream things and are presumably finding investment uh, from somewhere so um, I think I think it is changing for the better I think it is changing for the better I mean my backgrounds applications and downstream and then I've moved into the upstream area but you've got to have the upstream, otherwise you can't have those downstream technologies. But without the downstream, you've just got space junk. So actually, they've got to play in a complementary way. And the fact that there, are, there is a super amount of investment and interest in growing the sustainability of space and in growing the opportunities that, that there is in space, both in terms of the materials, in the propulsion systems, in the capabilities, in the refueling technologies, in the orbit maintenance and things like that, there are huge opportunities in the upstream as well as in the downstream now. But they've the two sectors have got to play together. Yeah, throw, throw in some numbers uh, from my previous role at Bryce. Um, so the space industry is close to $400 billion industry, and about $20 billion of that is launch and manufacturing. Most of that is manufacturing. And so about 120 is uh, downstream markets, uh, Earth observation, SATCOMs, etc. So you can see there's a lot of money, as you mentioned, uh, in, in downstream, but none of that downstream would be possible if you didn't have the launch and, and manufacturing. So you can't really take a shortcut to the downstream on its own. You need to have the whole ecosystem in place to enable that. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think one additional thing is fundamentally upstream is to do with physical components and hardware. Downstream is to do with digital electronics and data. So they are they rely on fundamental different, fundamentally different business models, and therefore the gains from them um, translate over different periods of time. Upstream, your investment is is 
possibly high risk because um, it's more substantial um, and you have to wait long for the return to come. But what, and what I've seen is that the, the translation of technology developed in the upstream can switch into other sectors. Um, and there's been some really amazing innovations that have come out of space. One example I came across a few years ago was how um, a high-speed uh, high encoder for data transmissions down to earth of very complex or very, very compressed data had been was being used to basically put inside a, a, a robotic pill that people could take, attach to a camera, and that was then scanning the inside of their digestive system in real time and recording it without them having to have an endoscope. And if you've ever had... Sorry? I did fund that, Rotes, yeah. <laughs> okay. Keep going. <laughs> she's she's going to show you up I was here. Just, I was, my, my punchline was, if you ever had an endoscope, you'd probably be really grateful that this robot exists. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but I mean, okay, I've lost my... <laughs> but, it's, but it's a great example of... The, these are, it's a very complex technology space upstream, and there's some beautiful stuff that comes out of it. You see phenomenal multidisciplinary research taking place, and the way that that's being applied with great brains to do stuff. Um, and when you think outside of that creatively about what the opportunities lie, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's really expansive. So the growth outside of space will rely heavily on what's happening in space is really, I suppose, what I'd like to say. Uh, well, I didn't do that. The company did that. And the artist program through the European Space Agency, which I used to run with Mike, who's over there, funded that, which was good fun. Or funded one of those. That was good. And then just touching on that, and also then, Emily, about that funding concept, I think from a external viewpoint, perhaps from a US fund coming into the UK, one of the things we've heard in terms of feedback is that it's great to have investors who are now interested in that really deep tech, hardware heavy, long-term investment, capital intensive, it feels like there has been a slight shift in the market. Are you seeing that with Ura? Many, are you seeing that with OrbitFab? Are we starting to see more investors willing to, to look past those immediate gains of, of data-based downstream businesses? Uh, Ura hasn't gone out for funding yet, so that's uh, not something that we've encountered yet, but we are definitely seeing that here at Westcott. Brilliant. So the, what we're what, talking about that here on site, the development of the space cluster here, the development and the support of Patrizia and the companies here in developing us, giving us the space, the time and the long-term vision of taking, for example, a 10-year lease on a new building that can be built, while also redeveloping the old buildings that are here, is definitely giving us that long-term opportunity to grow here on site alongside other space companies that are here. People like James who have been here for a long time, but also supporting and being very welcoming to new businesses who are coming here on site because actually we recognize that we can support each other, not just those businesses that are in the space cluster here, but also those who are in the car industry here on site. And there are people who do manufacturing here on site and others, and we really do play off each other. So that long-term support I'm de we're definitely seeing here at Westcott. Brilliant. Yeah, I think broadly speaking, the, in terms of investment in the space industry, we've seen a particularly uh, strong shift over the last few years from, um, I believe it was $3 billion in 2015, and then 2020 was um, $7 billion, and then last year was $15 billion in terms of the trajectory. Maybe that's come down this year with the economic environment, but uh, we've definitely, you know, 
work that Bryce we looked at all these numbers and and the and the trends it was interesting to see the trajectory um, in terms of orbit fab we've we've uh, raised about 15 billion so far we're currently uh, closing our series a um, I can't I'm not sure I can disclose what what the total is but but yeah we're, we're seeing strong interest uh, both from uh, you know investor VCs as well as uh, primes primes including so Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin uh, invested in orbit fab we're the only company that they've uh, invested together in as uh, it's an uh, interesting point um, and uh, yeah we're, we're seeing that and I think in the last year in the UK alone we've seen um, a couple of companies get acquired in space missions got acquired by um, BAE systems and uh, Norse got acquired by Raytheon so very recently so there's kind of investors like to see kind of the exit opportunities and and uh, acquisitions are one path towards that um, but yeah we're seeing good good trends in that direction brilliant conscious of time so I've got one last question we've touched on the great things that Westcott has to offer what are some of the not the best things or not the great things what has gone slightly off plan perhaps <laughs> Go on. <laughs> okay. Um, I first came to Westcott when a young boy. Um, I was uh, as a graduate, as an engineer, um, and Royal Ordnance were the major player here on site. It's a very different site. There were no shiny buildings. It was mostly concrete bunkers and asbestos, um, and lots of green fields. And it was very cold. Um, and we came here um, in February to do some propellant handling training. And if you've ever handled propellant, you know the first thing you have to do is wear protective clothing. Um, if you're using stuff like hydrazine, it's generally a full body rubber suit with an air hose and you look like an astronaut on steroids, I suppose. It's the best way to describe it. Um, it's a very unpleasant way of training how to handle propellant, um, but very memorable because I think at one point we were playing with uh, liquid nitrogen and seeing the quite interesting effects you can have on small bits of wildlife and insect life uh, with those products, um, just to understand how dangerous they actually are. Um, so I think, it, I suppose my, my memories of it are, are mixed. It was, it was interesting, it's a learning place. I'm pleased to see how it's evolved. I think it's fabulous to see that there's this massive level of regeneration occurring at the moment um, and this growth opportunity in line with where the sector's going as a whole. Um, and I'm sure there'll be some, some more fabulous stories coming out of this lot than I will ever be able to tell. So we're currently regenerating a site at Westcott and it's fair to say that some of the challenges have been animals appearing where they probably ought not to be uh, in various parts of the site and repeatedly re appearing, getting through a two foot stick thick steel reinforced wall to put a fan in involved hiring the same drill that was used in the Hutton Garden jewellery heist. Um, that was quite fun to get that on site to do to install fans because actually some of the things that have been used for the propulsion testing back in the 1970s are really very good at their job in terms of blast shields um, but not so easy to refurb. Realising that there are no fire systems in old buildings and things like that so taking it right back to basics in terms of what you've got to develop. Um, but it's been an enormous amount of fun to do it um, you just have to be prepared to get your hands dirty and uh, actually the vast majority of the engineers I've met are and that's been a great learning curve 
Yeah, I think I would, would echo that. I mean, we've gone through the similar process of uh, re uh, refurbishing J1 and J2, and uh, you know, trying to make holes in concrete and all those good things. Uh, so, so we've certainly experienced that. Um, and I would definitely echo the thing about the, the resurgence at Westcott because I think I first came here in uh, 1995 to test a high altitude hot air balloon balloon burner inside a, an altitude chamber. And back then it was just when the the sort of government site here that was here, the rocket propulsion establishment, was all shutting down and everything, everyone was moving away and. And uh, it was all quite depressing, really, and so it's absolutely amazing to see it now a resurgence in it. It's really, really good to see. Um, no, I mean, in terms of downsides of being a Westcott, really, um, the, uh, the, the only thing I'd say is that there's something about test programs that you plan to do them where you build a test rig in the summer and it never happens. It always, the program always goes late or the customer doesn't have the thing to and it ends up you having to build it in the winter when your hands are freezing and the spanners are freezing and then, but one thing we did discover is it is possible to make snowballs with a rocket engine. Um, it does cause, the plume causes the snow to roll up and uh, so we thought if we, if we had prolonged snow it might actually be possible to make a rocket-powered snowman, but uh, we haven't quite got... <laughs> well, there's an interesting side. <laughs> so it can side. be cold, but other than that, it's, it's lovely. And windy. <laughs> I, I don't have any uh, Westcott stories. Uh, we're looking at uh, Westcott. I was actually here at the Expo last year, and it's amazing to see the, uh, the transformation in just the last year. Um, we are looking at uh, manufacture, manufacturing our interfaces that go on the satellites. Um, Westcott is a, a, a potential site. We're working with, uh, look, talk, speaking with partners here. So um, yeah, we're, we're keen to see how we might be able to fit in uh, going forward. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone. I think as a concluding remark very quickly, because I know we're about to get shooed off stage, I think it's clear to see then from the discussion here the opportunity Westcott has to offer for companies and the opportunity the UK has to offer for companies now, bringing in startups based here and also bringing in investment and companies from uh, the US and otherwise into the UK. And also the fact that, and we touched on this in the previous panel as well, with the PillCam, and you look at MRI, it's the same. Technology from space affects or touches every industry now. And that's only going to get more and more broad as we progress with the infrastructure we put there, the availability of technology in space, and how much data we can bring back down to enable life on Earth to be more effective. So please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, please do subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering many different sectors, visit the Catapult website or join us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.